Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. This morning we are officially finishing up our Revive series. And uh, as we do, I want to take us to a passage of Scripture. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And while you're turning there, let me just set this up just a little bit for you. In Mark's Gospel account of the life of Jesus, this is the moment right before what we refer to as the triumphal entry of Jesus. Passover season is upon us, and, and this triumphal entry is recorded, and it really begins to set into motion a series of messianic prophecy fulfillments that uh, these events will begin to unfold. From Jesus' arrest to his various trials, to his beating, to his ridicule, to his crucifixion, and ultimately to the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And so Passover is is season is is coming and this is a procession of people that are on their way to Jerusalem the holy city and and uh, over this period of time the population of that city would probably triple in size as people were just sort of making their pilgrimage to enjoy the Passover. And so here we are in this little town of Jericho. This is a different Jericho than the Old Testament Jericho. Uh, And the Jericho is right along the caravan route to Jerusalem. And it's at a lower base of of a, a mountain where Jerusalem is up on a hill. And so that's why they always talk about going up to Jerusalem, because they're literally going up. And so Mark chapter 10 begins this process. And we're going to see a crowd of people that are walking along and following Jesus. These are the people that have listened to him. They've listened to him teach. He's fed them. They've seen him do miracles. Many of them are are believing that he is indeed the Messiah. And many of them are following him along the route because they're excited because he is the Messiah. They believe he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to begin to captivate people and he's going to overthrow the government. He's going to take the throne and he's going to be the leader that they always believed he would be. Hindsight, looking back, we realize that's not who Jesus is. That's not his mission. That's not his goal. But these are the group of people that are following Jesus. So in this moment, look at with me at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. Mark chapter 10, verse 46, simply says, Mark records, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, this, this was not uncommon. This was a passage route. Many beggars would line this route. So this was a, a, something that they would do regularly. In verse 47, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Let me just stop there for a moment. Because I want to make three observations through this little passage of Scripture. The first observation I want to make right here, and I want to talk about the distracted crowd. The distracted crowd. There's a great crowd that's following Jesus, and off on the side you have beggars. One specifically that that Mark is teaching us about is this guy named Bartimaeus. And it says that he cried out. The, the word that he used, cry out, is, is kind of an interesting word because it's sort of a vehement outcry. It's sort of a, a scream, almost unintelligible. 
It was often a word used for someone that might have been filled with evil spirits or had epilepsy, that that they may just scream out with unintelligible words or sounds that no one could understand. In other words, almost as if to get the attention of Jesus, he would just, he would just begin to cry out. But in gaining that attention, he, he would say, Jesus, son of David. He referred to him from a messianic title acknowledging, and maybe it was just from the crowd of people. Maybe he was just overhearing the chatter of these people who were praising Jesus because they were excited about being with Jesus. But I want you to see that they were also a distracted people. Here was a man crying out to meet Jesus. And, And what does the text tell us? Look at verse 48. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. Listen, when we read through the gospel accounts, there are many, many times that we see the people who were so excited about Jesus keeping people from actually meeting Jesus. Remember the story of little Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19, it says, he wanted to see Jesus, but he could not, what? Because of the crowd. Bartimaeus wanted to meet and encounter Jesus, but he couldn't. Matter of fact, he was rebuked by the followers of Jesus from even coming to see him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the accounts. Matter of fact, earlier in Mark chapter 10, recalls the account of the children that were trying to get to Jesus, but it says that, nope, Jesus' followers... We're hindering the children, and Jesus simply said what? Uh, Let the little children come to me. How often as followers who are excited about Jesus and enjoying his teaching, are we actually a distracted people keeping people from seeing Jesus? What about Mark chapter 2, the paralytic, whose four friends tried to bring him to Jesus, who was teaching at at a home, but the home was so packed with people that it was overflowing out of the building. And so what did they do? They went to the roof, they cut a hole, and they lowered their friend in to see Jesus. I don't think there's anything wrong with those crowds. I don't think they were evil. I don't think they were mean. And certainly these people along the parade route, the pilgrimage route to the Passover with Jesus, I don't believe they were mean-spirited. Nothing in the text tells us that they were evil. Matter of fact, they were probably good, excited followers of Jesus. They probably ate at Chick-fil-A. They probably listened to K-Love Radio. They may have even been donors to the radio station. They probably owned all the religious things. They probably even went to synagogue once a month. They they were good followers of Jesus. Nothing tells us that they were mean, but let me tell you this, they were distracted. And I, I just have to say, I believe this is a beautiful representation of the American church today. Sometimes we get so excited about our, our activities because, listen, we're excited about Jesus. I'm excited about Jesus. Are you excited about Jesus? One-third of the room this morning is excited about Jesus. I am excited about Jesus, and I want to follow Him, and I want to keep my focus and my attention on Him passionately, but listen, I don't want to do it at the extent that I disregard the ministry to which He's called me. 
Because see, what Jesus had clearly already taught his disciples in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, what did he say? He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know what's amazing? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the verse right before our passage this morning, as James and John were arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, Jesus looked at his followers and he said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You see, the crowd was distracted because they missed the very heart of Jesus. He said, I've not come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This distraction named Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, called him by his messianic title, and Jesus said, come. Folks, listen, I want to be really careful. We need to be passionate and excited about being around Jesus and being in a house of worship and gathering with one another. But we can't do so to the extent that we are distracted by the very mission that Jesus came, the very mission to which he has called us. Pastor Scott has reminded us over and over that saved people are sent people. The the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we focus on who he is, the more it should drive us out to a world that is hurt and lonely and missing and crying out to meet Jesus. We have people in our lives, I promise you, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, our t-ball families, our soccer families, our baseball families, our gymnastic families, our, you know, macrame whatever stuff, our origami club, whatever it is, these people are screaming out to see and know the Jesus that you and I are so excited about. And let's not be so distracted about our excitement that we miss the people around us that are crying out to see Jesus. Let us not be a distracted people. So look at verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And throwing off his cloak, this immediate, Jesus said, come, immediately he came. He threw off his cloak and he came to Jesus. Now, this to me, when I read the text, it it just sort of screams like one of those funny video TV shows. They, they roll a little bit of the video, and then they stop it, and they say, so guess what's going to happen next? You ever watch those? I'm the only one that's ever seen this, really? They kind of roll a video, and then they stop it, right? Like it might be a bulldozer or something trying to get a tree. And so then they pause it, and they say, now what do you think's going to happen next? And usually, you know, like the bulldozer or the car, whatever, ends up out of control and rolling down the hill or something, and and that's what I'm looking at here in this situation. Bartimaeus, the blind beggar who's screaming out to Jesus, comes to Jesus because Jesus invited him to come. Now they're face to face. What is expected to happen? Because what's about to happen is either, oh, that's exactly what I expect, or, whoa, that was not expected at all. Like me, when I was a little boy who used to get mom's hairspray aerosol cans. Anybody in the room remember Aquanet? (laughs) My brother and I would get those and we'd like throw them in the fire. We'd take like three steps back like that's going to save us. Just waiting. Oh, look, it's getting dark. And that thing would explode. Well, we expected that to happen. 
And I do remember one time literally like just turning because I knew it was getting ready to blow and shrapnel ended up in my jacket. It could be exactly what you expect or it could be somewhat unexpected like Larry Walters. Does anybody remember the name Larry Walters? You may remember him as Lawn Chair Larry. It was July 1982. Larry Walters thought it'd be a great idea to take a lawn chair, attach 45 helium-filled weather balloons to his chair and release it. And he was expecting to just sort of elevate a little bit and fly. Well, quickly, he elevated to about 15,000 feet in the air. And the wind caught him out of San Pedro, California, and he began to float northward into restricted airspace over Los Angeles Airport. <clears throat> There's actually video of this and, and some of the audio, and because he's like, yeah, you better call LAX and tell them I'm drifting northward. And, and there's a guy that they interviewed later that was a pilot coming in inbound to LAX who, I'll, uh, he said, off at my 10 o'clock, he said, there's a, a bunch of balloons, and it looks like there's a guy strapped to a chair. <clears throat> well, Larry had it all planned because he had a BB gun, and his plan was to shoot out some of the balloons and uh, eventually come down. Well, he dropped his gun after shooting about seven, and, but he did slowly descend. About 10 days later, he actually showed up on the old David Letterman show. It was really kind of a funny bit. Before Larry died, he was actually quoted as saying, and I love this, a man can't just sit around. <clears throat> so something's about to happen. It's either ex it's exactly what I expected or it's not expected at all. So this beggar walks up to Jesus, and Jesus simply asks, asks him a very direct question question. Look with me. Verse 51, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? To many people in the crowd, this was not expected at all. Because Bartimaeus, like all the other beggars, would have just been begging along the road. His probably typical reply would have just been, Hey, alms, alms for a poor blind man. I need to survive. I need money for my family. Instead, Jesus did what Jesus was so good at doing. He asked a question. Do you realize in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our Gospel writers record 339 direct questions from Jesus? Jesus was not only an incredible teacher, Jesus was a great individual at asking compelling questions. And there's a lot we can do and we can learn in areas of leadership by asking the right questions. Matter of fact, I got a friend, Bob Titi, he has a whole ministry based around the idea of leading with questions. He actually did a book on the 339 questions of Jesus. It's great stuff. In hindsight, you and I can look back and realize who Jesus was because we know that he was soon to be arrested. He went on trial. He was crucified. He stayed dead for three days in the tomb, but he rose again. It's easy for us to look back and realize this is Jesus. Bartimaeus didn't know all of who Jesus was, but something in the text tells us about how he responded. He responded. 
Because he could have simply said, hey, a couple spare shekels would be fantastic, man. Something to just help me out. That would have revealed the substance of his faith. That would have revealed the priority of his life. And when Jesus comes to you and he comes to me, which I believe wholeheartedly he's doing this morning, and if you could imagine yourself just sitting intimately with Jesus this morning, he would look at you and he'd say, what do you want me to do for you? How you answer that question, how I answer that question, reveals the substance of our faith. It reveals the longing of our heart. It reveals the longing of the desire we have to walk in fellowship with Jesus. And I believe that far too many of us ask far too little of Jesus. We seek an extra margin of comfort. We stay enslaved to our sin. When we could ask for and we could receive a full measure of God's forgiveness a full measure of his mercy, a full measure of his saving grace. Because I believe that Jesus is looking us in the face, in the eye, and simply asking, what do you want me to do for you? Pastor Scott has reminded us numerous times and several times just over this Revive series of this simple statement, crisis brings clarity. Bartimaeus was in a situation of crisis, and that crisis brought clarity to his life. But I got thinking about that thought, and I thought, you know what, if crisis brings clarity, then what about comfort? Because in a way, this crowd was very comfortable being with Jesus. In a, in a way, very realistically, us as an American church are very comfortable in our Christian faith. Man, we love Jesus. We love all the music, we love all the books, we love all the Bible studies, all the video series, all the stuff that we have for Jesus, but when we look back at church history, we realize the church thrives in persecution. What if Jesus was looking you in the face this morning, and he simply said, what would you like for me to do for you? And what if your response was something really radical, like, God, I am praying that I would experience persecution for my faith so that the church could thrive? That would be revival. But if crisis brings clarity, sometimes comfort brings clarity as well. And in that comfort, I believe a clarity begins to develop when we realize that, you know what, I am not fully satisfied the way God intends for me to be satisfied. Because I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. When there's an emptiness in our life because we realize that deep down God created us, He called us, He saved us for something greater than we're living, something greater than we're experiencing in the Christian life because God called us to something much more radical. So as He looks at us, what if, what if He simply said, Dave, what is it that you want me to do for you? What if my prayers were more radical? That's what this whole series has been about. What if what I was asking of Jesus was not about my comforts? Oh, God, I, I really could use a new car. True. Is it true for anybody else? It's true. I don't think that's just Jesus' greatest desire for me. And I don't think that reveals the sincerity and depth of my faith. I love the way R.C. Sproul put it one time. He simply said, people desperately search for the things that only God can give them, while at the same time they're fleeing from him. 
We're distracted. We love being around Jesus. We love the comforts of being a Christian. No persecution, no difficulties, no hardships. Somehow we have this Christian idea in America that we come to Jesus and everything's just wonderful because God's just going to fix all your stuff. I don't see that in Scripture anywhere. People, we need revival. And I believe when Jesus looks us in the eye and he simply says, what is it you want me to do for you? I believe revival comes when we begin to say, God, I want to waken for my comfort. God, God, I want something more radical than you could ever imagine. God, I want you to release in me power and conviction and growth and ministry and service. You see, when Bartimaeus responded to Jesus, he said, I want to regain sight. Your, your text may say, I want to see or I want to receive my sight. Some texts will actually say, I want to see again. As if something had happened to him once, the the. the word that's used is not absolutely clear because in some places it's defined or, or translated slightly different but in the context of our revive series can i simply say god i want to see again because that's what revival is it, it's a rebirthing it's a re-excitement of what i once had and i believe bartimaeus is a beautiful picture of that god i was once very excited and very passionate about you and my walk with you and god i want to go back to do that again like the psalmist said, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation because I want to know you anew and afresh all over again. Folks, that's revival. That is you and I desperately seeking the face and the presence of Jesus, crying out to him desperately, crying out to him in an undignified manner as Bartimaeus saying, Jesus, I just want to know you. Jesus, I want you to use me in ways that, that I can't even imagine in, in my own power and my own authority. God, I want to know you intimately. God, I want you to use me in ways that I, I, I just never even imagined in my life. And he said, I want to regain my sight. For you and I, it would be saying, God, I want you to restore the joy of your salvation. God, I want you to fill me with a blessed hope. God, I want you to fill me with peace that passes all understanding. God, I want you to fill me with intimacy with Jesus. So much so that it gives me spiritual insight to see my world the way you see my world. I want to picture your glory as we saw last week in Isaiah. I want to see your glory so clear that it reveals my sin and drives me to you in a way that I've never imagined. God, I want the intimacy and fellowship that I had with you once upon a time. Would you revive me? Would you pull the scales from my eyes, pull the scales from my heart, pull away all the comfort, and God, make me uncomfortable to live passionately for you. These are the things, folks, that bring revival in the life of a church. Desperately seeking Jesus as Bartimaeus and saying, God, I want to see. I want to see my life, my ministry, the way you see my life the way you see my ministry. So let me ask you this morning, what are you asking Jesus for? What are you asking him for? Are, are you saying, God, restore the joy of my salvation? Are you saying, God, give me eyes to see people the way you see people? Are you saying, give me compassion and a heart of mercy? 
Are you saying, Jesus, let me be like you. Make me a servant. Are you saying, God, use me to strengthen and equip others? Are you saying, fill me with your wisdom. Fill me with your power. Are you saying, give me boldness and give me courage to share my story with other people? Are you saying, God, simply save me from my sin and give me new life? Because maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I've never come to know Jesus. And he's looking you square in the face and he's saying, what do you want me to do for you? Maybe this morning you simply need to say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to save me. Give me new life. He wants to do that. Lastly, look at verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Last thing we see in this passage is a determined obedience. See, the, the term that's used here, to follow, it may just say he began to follow him. I'm not, a, I'm not a great grammar student by any stretch of the imagination, but when I did some reading, I love it because this is an imperfect tense of the verb. And scholars call this part of grammar an ingressive imperfect. And it simply means that the subject started something and then continued on. See, something began that day, and it continued on. Bartimaeus received his sight and began to follow Jesus, and the, the grammar tells us that he continued until the day he died. Something happened in his life that changed his life forever. Some of us have had church encounters, but we've not had Jesus encounters. Some of us are excited about church, we're excited about programs, we're excited about Chick-fil-A, we're excited about radio, we're excited about worship, we're excited about all the things of Jesus, but we're not excited about Jesus. And we've had those encounters and we like to be part of something when Jesus says, what I want you to be a part of is me. I want you to fall deeply in love with me. Bartimaeus started something, and he continued. So I want to ask us some questions this morning. Have you come to know Jesus? I just, in a very honest, very real way, if it was just you and I sitting down at cafe table back here, out in the lobby, and just having a cup of coffee, and I were to just ask you very simply, have you come to the place that you know for sure that you've given your heart and life to Jesus? What's your answer? Some of you just immediately, oh, absolutely. And, and I would say, tell me, tell me how and when you came to know Jesus. And you would just tell me your story. It's beautiful. Some of you would say, well, I, I think so. I think I have. Some of you would say, no, nah, I don't know that I've ever done that. This morning, I want you to know the love that Jesus offers you. That's what we're about as a church. That, that's the gospel that Jesus came to live and die for. He loves you so much. He desires a personal relationship with you. 
And the biggest question that every one of us in this place this morning have to answer is that simple question. Do you know for certain you've come to the place that you've trusted Jesus with your very heart and life? That you've invited him in, asked, you to, asked him to forgive you of your sin. Have you done that? Jesus is asking every one of us in this place this morning, what is it that you want me to do for you? And for some of you, you have to simply respond and say, Jesus, I want you to save me. I know that I'm a sinner, and the best way I know how, I give you complete control of my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to live a sinless life, die a brutal death, be buried in a tomb, and raised from the dead on my behalf so that I can have victory over sin. Do you need to invite him in this morning? For some of us, as we move into this Thanksgiving season, I jotted down a series of things that I'm thankful for, and things that I'm hoping you are thankful for as well, because we're going to celebrate this week. We're going to enjoy some time. And as we do, there's a couple of compelling questions that I think sort of speak to the heart of who we are as believers. And they're simply this, when was the last time that you, as a follower of Jesus, personally shared your faith in Jesus with another person? The second question would simply be this, who are you personally spending intentional time with to help them grow to be more like Jesus Christ? In other words, discipling, investing in them. Those begin to speak to the priorities of our life. And so as I sit at the table this week and, and am thankful, maybe you can resonate. God, I'm thankful for my salvation. God, I'm thankful for my church family. God, I want to be thankful for my, my small group and the people who love me and care for me. God, I'm thankful for the folks that are praying for me. God, I'm thankful that others encourage me every day in my walk with Jesus. I hope you can say those things. I hope you can genuinely, honestly say those things. But we can do those things and be a distracted crowd. So I want to challenge us as a church as we continue to seek revival in the life of our church. We have to seek revival personally. And I trust and pray going into next Thanksgiving, these are the things that will resonate with our church family to say, God, these are the things for which I'm incredibly thankful in addition to the things that I mentioned, if I'm going to be a non-distracted follower living with determined obedience, I want to sit before God and I want to say, God, I am thankful that you used me to lead someone to you. God, I'm thankful that you have given me a home that I've opened up and, and you allow others to be equipped and encouraged in my home. God, I am thankful that, that you have strengthened me in my faith to step out and begin to lead others. God, I'm thankful that you allowed me to invest in whomever, fill in the blank with a name, and that I've had the joy to watch them grow in Jesus Christ. God, I am thankful that you've allowed me to battle in prayer for the needs of friends and family. God, I am thankful for the joy that I have found in serving others. God, I am grateful for the growth that I've experienced in learning to encourage and challenge others spiritually. I pray that by next year, our Thanksgiving tables, tables will just resonate with those kind of things. God, I'm thankful that you've broken me from the bondage of sin. 
God, I'm, I'm thankful that you've broken me from the bondage of, of Christian comfort and complacency in a culture. Maybe next year we're saying, God, I'm thankful for the persecution that you've brought into our church because your church is thriving in persecution. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Would you bow your heads?